0: You're listening to Heart of the Hunter, a serialized fantasy novel set in Coronai, the magical country. This story was written and performed by Sam Chupp. For more information about this podcast, including upcoming role-playing game releases associated with this novel, check out heartofthehunter.com And now it's time for the story so far. While Raven... Alabar, and Aran went to rescue and heal the woman named Chandra from the clutches of the sociopaths Mad Jack and his band. Peter was left alone with the caravan, Dav, Gar, the Sidalian Teamsters, and the factor Jurgen Colesblood. Unable to sleep, Peter was visited by the beautiful gypsy woman named Corinne, who Peter knew was someone Aran wanted to one day marry. The two had a strange chemistry between them, as they discussed the situation with Arin, and the rescue. But Peter reassured her he was honorable, and Corin reassured him that she was taken. Before they could say anything else, Corin screamed as she was shot with a nasty, nailed-tongue crossbow bolt. An attack from the trees had begun. Now please enjoy episode twelve. "'Corin!' Peter yelled, and grabbed his crossbow. The unmistakable buzzard fletchings of the bolt protruding from Corin's shapely thigh made it apparent what was happening, that bolt had come from a nail tongue. Turning back to Dov, he cried out, "'Go alert the gypsies! I'll see to our wagons!' Dov nodded and ran off to the shadows, shouting to wake the camp. He opened his strong box which had been set next to him as he'd been grooming the horses, and pulled out a flare bolt. Fitting it to his crossbow, he let fly, reasoning that it may just have been one or two raiders like before at the inn. Get ye away, every one of ye! Peter shouted at the enemies he knew would be out there. The flare bolt rocketed skyward. A red light followed its path on the way up, and then the light exploded birthing a brilliant red star in the night sky. Not so far off came the cries of the gypsies as they were awakened by the explosion and by Dav. Peter had already made his way to Corinne, who lay there looking at Peter in shock. "'Can you walk on that?' Peter asked, and set aside his crossbow to try and help her up. She shook her head no as he did. She would not speak for fear of dishonoring herself with tears." Gar appeared at his side from the fire shadows and poured a bucket of water and a bucket of dirt onto the fire, one after the other. The light died immediately, but the men's night vision would now not be hampered. Gar then turned to help Peter half-carry, half-drag Corinne across the campsite and into the second wagon, and handed Peter some cotton rags to use as bandages. The gypsy woman shrieked in pain as she was moved. But once inside, the wagon opened her eyes as Peter touched her under the chin. Corinne! Corinne, listen to me! You have to hold this on your thigh! It's got to stop bleeding! Do you understand? Peter said, trying to catch her attention. She nodded weakly, fighting to keep her consciousness. Factor, can you help her? he spat at Cole's blood, who looked bewildered and shocked. Ignoring the factor's demands for a status report, He left climbing down the steps out of the wagon, looking around the campsite. Gar touched Peter on the shoulder to get his attention. Peter grinned at Gar, who had shouldered a, a Dracon rifle he'd broken out of stores, and the teamster wordlessly handed Peter his crossbow, having fetched it from across the camp. Peter gestured to Gar to board the interior of the second wa- caravan wagon, and he took the first. Pulling a simple wooden lever on the ceiling of the wagon, Peter opened the arrow slits built into the side of the wagon. Shaped like equal-armed crosses, they would provide for excellent cover and allow Peter to shoot out with fairly good accuracy. He heard Gar pulling the arrow slit lever on the second wagon. The two wagons had been strategically placed so that they would have a field of fire that wouldn't cause each other problems. He stepped out of the wagon to see if Dav had returned or if Gar was himself ready for the fight. And to his surprise and dismay, all around him in the trees, he heard a hissing, a clicking of teeth, and the rattling of spears on shields. The nail were there, and they were already surrounded. "'Well, now, didn't think I'd ever hear that sound again,' Peter raised his voice in challenge. "'Hello there, nail boys! Did you come to stare, or did you come to dance?' A hooting cry came up from the trees, and a mass of nail bodies swarmed the camp. Kenhill's horse was young and strong, but he knew from the shuddering beat of the stallion's heart between his legs that the steed had nearly spent all he could give. Wading gently into a waist-high stream ford, he knew, he brushed drifts of foam off the beautiful creature and led him gently through the safest passage. A massive wolf, head nearly as large as Kenhill's own, plunged into the water a few body lengths away, snarling. He launched himself into the air in a lope, crossing the stream the rest of the way, throwing up water. Careful there, Brother Warrell. Kenhill said, laughing. Tantil doesn't know you aren't about to eat him. The wind holds much green ward, and the scent of nail caught with raid over brimming is not one I can easily ignore. The wolf sent back to Kenhill. I'll try not to spook your plant-eater, but I can't vouch for the rest of my pack if he founders as he serves you. He shan't founder. We are nearly there. The old one's camp is there, over the hill— and a peace. Tantil's fight is over. Ours just begins. Old ones hunt our tribe, Warl sent as they moved quietly now through the trees. Do you think my pack will willingly serve to fight the enemies who trap and kill us? Kenhill sent back to him. You will, Warl, if you value the promises the Keepers gave you. This winter next will be brutal. "'and your pack stands to walk away with many cubs "'and a gentle place to face the teeth of the death-ice "'and hide from his wife, the hate wind. "'Warl shook his head and panted. "'It looked like laughing to Kenhill. "'Yes, if the keepers keep their promise. "'Our pack will grow strong. "'And if we die on nail-spears?' "'Kenhill nodded. "'You heard them at the river council, Warl. "'Healing for your bodies, mourning for your dead.' and a great debt added to the Keeper's memories. Worrell gave the wolf equivalent of a chuckle a chuff sound. Let us hope these memories are long, Greenward. Let us hope. Both the camp of the mercenaries and the gypsy camp were in chaos. The nail were somewhat surprised at the number of two legs in the campsite. Wondered at the brightly colored cart so many there were. They flinched at the flare arrow that burned high in the sky like the burning soul of a forgotten ancestor. They attacked all the same, but they were confused. They ran through the campsite unimpeded, looking for something to kill, screaming, yelling, finding the campsite empty and that was when the carts themselves opened up fire on them. And they came to realize why fear had already touched their collective spirits. The gypsies weren't called the masters of the road for nothing. Deadly shots cracked the night, and one by one nail raiders fell, becoming a hazard to the other raiders while impeding their progress through the camp spitting fire from their smokesticks through cunningly hidden fire-crosses, the gypsies were not about to engage in hand-to-hand combat with a better, armed, stronger force. War leader Chersk sat in a tree overlooking the battle. He cursed. What should have been a rout followed by delicious meals and perhaps a little inkenning on the soft ones had become something completely different. But apparently a stupid Tangresh had attacked a soft one before the signal had been given, and the warband's presence had been detected, giving the soft ones time to prepare their attack. He saw how the two legs had hidden in their hard wooden carts, how they were firing their smokesticks at them, how they were bringing death to the tribe. But he knew something important. The sticks needed energy for their death magic to work. With a hiss, he called down to the tankeress slingers below the trees and they let fly with their ashwood discs. The anti-magical wood brought its disenchanting effects wherever it landed, the circles of influence overlapping each other and covering much, if not all, of the camp. Suddenly, the sounds of the smokesticks stopped, and a terrible toothy grin sprang up on Chursk's maw. A strange clicking sound came from Gar's rifle, and nothing happened. Normally what should have been a glowing purple charge stone, or at least red when it was beginning to get low, was dark, empty. The rampaging nail outside the caravan wagon stopped dying. Jurgen Colesblood looked up from where he was bent over, trying to help Corinne with her wound. What happened? Did you... did you run out? Gar shrugged and put the rifle aside then brought up a spare already-loaded crossbow. shh Factor! Peter hissed from the other wagon. When the magic died, Moms Elaine turned to the Tantees boys, handing them each a small round mage light the size of a river snail, its power dimmed temporarily. They've got Ashwood boys. Do you now go, and do you move unseen through the trees till you see these lights come again? "'Then you will know where the mage-banes are. "'Find them, and destroy or throw them as far away as you can. "'Do not be seen. Go now.' "'The two boys nodded as they dropped down through a hatch in the floor of the gypsy wagon, "'their mottled green and brown cloaks sure to be useful in hiding in the night. "'Moms glanced around the wagon, "'which was packed to brimming with women and children and infants in body-slings.' They were not like Gahe women, who would have been crying and fearful, nor were their children, who were quiet, waiting patiently for instructions as to what they must do. This pleased her. The silence was eerie as she heard the scrabbling bodies of the nail outside, and she could only pray to the ancestors that her husband would be safe. But if they thought to come to this wagon to perhaps take one of the women here and rape them for a brood slave. The nail would discover the ferocity of the Valisti mothers. Several Ogrim warriors had flung lit torches on the wagons themselves, trying to smoke Peter out. He had been lucky to see the toss and now smelled the burning wood. The cargo! It would not do to let the cargo burn and ruin all profit from the trip. And so Peter left the confines of the first wagon, and took up arms against the host arrayed against him. But he was only one man. It was a simple thing to first toss the torch in the direction of the campfire, keeping his eyes out of its piercing red light. And then Peter was surrounded. A terasque with its hard chitinous shell and an augrim with a hook pole came at him, and he had to draw his sword to survive. It came free from its well-used sheath, and Peter lost no time in applying his deadly art to the use of the weapon. Dodging, bending, thrusting, slicing, he lost himself in the dance, which was, he knew, the only way he could survive. In his hands his sword became an extension of himself, and his surroundings vanished except for that which threatened him. Time seemed to blur for him, and he fought better and faster than he'd ever fought before. His face developed a grin of triumph when he realized why the guns had stopped shooting. The ashwood mage death surrounded him, but his abilities called for nothing that did not come to him naturally. He knew that the nail would be more likely to engage him hand to hand as well, for it was well known most nail tongues' hearing was too sensitive for the pain of the discharge of Dracon pistols. His blade would not be stopped by ashwood, and his blade would not run out of charges. As long as he kept out of the range of their sharp little darts, their slender, wicked spears, he would be okay. He had learned in the Tangrush conflicts in Yar not to let the little rat lizard sneak up on him, to constantly check behind him. Suddenly, the tarasque who was bent forward, trying to snap at Peter's legs, grew a war bolt in his forehead the blade of the bolt piercing its carapace and splattering slime all over his ogrim cohort. Peter did not glance back, but grinned and said, "'Welcome back, Dov. We missed you. Don't worry. I'd be saving a few for you.' "'Aye, Sergeant, aye,' Dov said as he whir-clicked the Cydalian crossbow and loaded again. When he pulled the trigger, the flywheels on the Cydalian bow whirred in response, helping to crank the bow tension back each time they shot." But that was not enough to cock them alone, and so Dov grunted and cranked until he heard the click of the locking mechanism. Still, it was considerably faster than cocking it all by hand, and Dov was grateful for the invention. It had saved many a Sidalian's life on the road. The click whirr of Gar's crossbow within the second wagon told Dov where he was, and he moved quickly out of Gar's line of fire. He saw the first wagon's door ajar and went to use that fire slit. Taking the advantage of surprise that came from the Ogrim's shield mate suddenly dying, Peter moved and cleaved, paused, and struck again. His beater shield kept off claws, kept off spears, kept off other nasty blades that were caked with gore and grime and filth as more ogrim came from the tree line to do battle. Peter didn't even realize he had subconsciously moved out of the arc of fire the second wagon owned. Peter fought perhaps better than he'd ever fought in his life, but he was only one man. An Ogrim's fetid spear broke past his guard and pinked his shoulder, sending a shock of pain through the whole sword arm. He nearly dropped the blade, but long years of practice kept it moving. Instead of letting himself get surrounded, Peter stepped up onto the second wagon, gaining the height advantage, hanging on with one arm, moving his sword in a desperate maneuver to keep his enemies from closing, From within, Dov's shots struck home. A crossbow bolt pierced the eye of the Ogrim warrior about to lunge at him, where he stood, and another one pierced the heart of the Tangresh who had launched himself from the trees behind him. When he finally made the top of the first wagon, his shoulder burning, he paused for a moment to survey his surroundings. Dark shapes moved through the trees and past the wagon. The moon illuminated their featureless bodies. The more he killed, the more arrived. He wished fiercely for his squad mates. He was just one soldier, and the nail flooded all around him. The Algrim warrior held his fire. In addition to the poison tipped barbs of the crossbow bolt loaded in the large bolt thrower he held, he also had several white firebombs dangling from a side-slung belt. But he held his fire because he had no target, and because the soft ones in the wagons had been picking off Tangrash and others from within, choosing their targets carefully and firing their dracon pistols with deadly accuracy. That had stopped with the Ashwood Discs' arrival, ruining his white bombs because they depended on magic to ignite. So he just waited behind a tree, watching for the desperate gypsies to abandon their carts and try to take the fight to them. They would be wrong, and they would die for their error. Then he saw that some tangresh had made their way underneath the wagons, and he grinned a big toothy smile realizing that they were probably going to try and burn the carts out. Tangresh were always carrying nasty little things and always hatching cunning, nasty little plans. He shook his head at their cunning, to be able to sneak up so quietly and move underneath their enemy. He took a few steps forward, thinking to perhaps call the Tangresh's attention, to laugh at them for their cheek, when suddenly a strange white glow sprang up on his chest. All three of the white fire bombs glowed as they usually did. Then he realized what had happened as he heard the laughter, not of Tangreshi playing a joke, but of strange, softling children. Children who had undoubtedly found an ashwood disc and thrown it far, far away into the woods. Magic flowed back into the area quickly. "'lighting the charge-stones of the gypsies' dracon pistols "'within their wagons, and only a second after, three hissing sparks spat out of the end of those pistols' barrels, "'plunging through the forest darkness "'and through the Ogrim's armor. "'A young softling yelled a cry of triumph "'as all three of the bombs on the warrior's chest "'caught fire, one after the other, "'and that was the last thing the Ogrim saw,' before his world became white hot oblivion You've been listening to Heart of the Hunter a Koronai Chronicles story. Heart of the Hunter is brought to you by the Fireheart Foundry family of podcasts. Fireheart Foundry also produces Fledgling, a Leaden Universe science fiction novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. The Bears Grove Podcast. Dragonkin, the podcast for kids and gaming. The Square One Podcast. And Vibrant Living. Find out more about the Fireheart Foundry at fireheartfoundry.com. This podcast is brought to you under a Creative Commons Attribution. No derivatives, no commercial use. License 2.5. Music is provided by the Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Thanks for listening, and we invite you back to our fire real soon.